That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, we come before you today and acknowledge you for who you are, that you're the creator of all things, that you're the sustainer of all life. Lord, we also acknowledge that you deeply, deeply love your people. And through faith in Christ, we have been included in the people of God. And we know then that your love for us is a faithful, never-ending love. And we rejoice in that today. Father, we pray that as we give attention now to your word, that you would minister to us and speak to us, continue to guide and instruct us as a community of faith in what it looks like to live as the people of God in these times that we're living in. Lord, we're thankful to be here. We're thankful that you promised to gather together with your people when we gather in your name. And so we know that you're present with us. We acknowledge that. We praise you. We worship you. And we just ask that you administer to us as we seek to be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good to see all of you today and wonderful to hear everyone worshiping together. Um, I'm very excited to be able to start the book of Ruth next week. Looking forward to this new series. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm in need of a good love story. And that's what we're going to get in the next month and a half, studying the book of Ruth together. But uh, if you were here last week, you know that we've kind of taken a two-week break because we wanted to just pause and kind of talk a little bit about the season that we're in right now. Uh, obviously, this is a pretty contentious time. This is a time that is filled with a lot of anxiety as we're in this election cycle. And so we thought as a church, and particularly as pastors, that it would be wise and helpful for us to just hit pause after finishing Galatians before Ruth, and again, just kind of address the times that we're living in. If you missed last week's teaching, it really has to do with the way that we're conducting ourselves as Christians, the way that we're living right now, the way that we're interacting with other people. And if you miss that teaching, it's available on our podcast. I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, This week, it's a little bit of a part two. And uh, the main topic is going to be prayer. We are 30 days away from election day right now, about a month. And I just read that over 2 million people have already voted in this election, which is pretty incredible. I guess that shatters all previous records. But it's a good thing that people are excited to vote, that people are out voting. You and I are blessed. Let me say it differently. You and I are extremely blessed to live in a country where we have the ability to directly affect the changes that we want to see in the society that we live in. Voting is an amazing gift, and it's an incredible responsibility. 
Every single citizen has a tool in their hands that they can wield in an effort to make the United States a more perfect union. And boy, do we need that right now. So I encourage all of you, as long as your conscience allows it, to vote and to do so in accordance with biblical values. In saying that, it leads me to a question, though. The question is this. Is that all we can do? Or even the best that we can do as followers of Jesus? Are we limited to the tools that our human governments afford us? Or has God given other tools to his people to bring about change? I sure hope so, because there are many people who live in countries that are not democratic countries. There are many Christians living in societies that they don't have the freedom that we have to affect change by casting votes. Dictatorships, authoritarian regimes, uh, even the Roman Empire in the first century, which the audience that Paul's writing this letter to, they lived under that Roman Empire, an authoritarian government. What has God given to his people? What tools are available to us as Christians? Well, family, the truth of the matter is that God has given his people a great tool, a powerful weapon of change, if you will, and it's called prayer. And prayer can change human governments and human destinies. Again, prayer can change human governments and human destinies. I hope you believe that. I wonder, though, if we're behaving like we believe that. I wonder how each of us are doing right now in the prayer department. Many Americans are feeling a great deal of anxiety about this election. They want a certain outcome because they feel like so much is at stake, and perhaps that is true. But I wonder what tool you have been using most leading up to this election. Has it been prayer? Have you found yourself over and over, perhaps even on a daily basis, giving yourself to prayer and asking God to work the outcomes in November's elections that are according to his will? Or has the tool that you've been running to been perhaps the tool of arguing, debating, trying to win other people that you know over to your way of thinking? Now, last week, of course, we talked about that there is a place for sharing our ideas and dialoguing and engaging with other people and trying to convince people to see things the way that we see it. But what we're learning here today in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is this, that our first and our most frequently used tool ought to be prayer. We should be people of prayer. We are people who believe that there is a God in heaven who rules the nations. We're a people who believe that there is a God in heaven who loves us and who has our good as his children at heart, and therefore we should be calling on him constantly. This is what we see here in chapter two. Look again at verse one. First then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, we need to pray for everyone, all types of people, but especially or perhaps of first import, he would say, let's start with those who are in positions of authority. Let's pray for our government leaders. Now, let me pause for a moment and give us some context. We're obviously just kind of like diving into the middle of this letter uh, here in chapter two. 
the, the context in 1 Timothy is that the Apostle Paul is getting close to the end of his life and he's writing this letter to a young pastor who he's been discipling for years named Timothy. Timothy is pastoring in the city of Ephesus, which is a really strong commercial political center in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> and Timothy, again, is pastoring a church there or perhaps churches there. And so Paul sends off this letter and he's trying to instruct Timothy as a young pastor in how to lead the church. In chapter one, which obviously we didn't read, he begins by addressing false teaching. There were people that were threatening the integrity of the gospel in that church in Ephesus. And the apostle Paul has no time for that. So he deals with it in chapter one. But now he shifts gears in chapter two, where we're studying today. And he begins addressing the topic of public worship. What I mean by that is the way that the church worships God as we gather corporately, like we're doing here this morning. Paul is going to, at the beginning of chapter two and beyond, start addressing what it looks like as God's people gather for corporate worship. And notice what the first order of business is. When we get together as the people of God, yes, we sing songs. Yes, we study the scriptures. Yes, we receive the ordinances of communion. We practice baptism. We do all of those things. But he says, listen, first of all, be a people who are praying. When you and I gather as the people of God, we are supposed to gather as a body of people who pray. Now, sadly, there's lots of Christians who see prayer as only a private practice. It's kind of my own personal faith, and I don't want to really do this out in public or with other people. And so they think of prayer as a private practice. And the tragedy in so many churches in America is that prayer is the least exciting activity we can plan, right? It's been said that if you want your church full of people, organize a meal. If you want a night off, plan a prayer meeting. And then we wonder why so many of our churches are largely ineffective. Now, I've been so encouraged here at Apostles that that has not been the case. As Pastor Ryan mentioned, we have a monthly prayer and worship night. Every single month, we gather corporately to pray. And we have a wonderful turnout every single month for that of people who are eager to pray and excited to pray together as a church family. And we've been so encouraged to see so many things that we've been praying directly for in those meetings actually come to pass. And we celebrate that together. Now that I've successfully guilt-tripped everyone, I'll see you Wednesday night. <laughs> FYI, this Wednesday, we will be praying specifically for what Paul's talking about here. Praying for our government praying for our leaders, praying for our nation. Notice he says that we need to pray for all people. Obviously not all seven point whatever billion people. We couldn't do that. But what he means is all types of people. And he begins by those who are in these positions of authority. Now, why are we as Christians to be praying for those who are in authority over us? The answer is so that we can have freedom and protection to live godly lives. Look at the way he says it. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Think about what he's saying here. That you and I as Christians should be constantly giving ourselves to praying for our leaders so that they will create conditions that allow us to lead peaceful and quiet lives. Lives of godliness that are respectable. Notice as Christians, our goal is not to have a society that allows us to live hostile and boisterous lives. We're, we're looking to be a people who are peaceful among our community. That we're a humble people like we talked about last week. 
that we don't have to assert ourselves. We don't have to be first. We don't have to be the loudest. We don't have to argue and, until we're red in the face. That really the, the Christian church is supposed to be, again, a, a humble, peaceful community of people whose ultimate trust is not in Washington. Our ultimate trust is in King Jesus. Living lives that are godly, lives that are dignified or respectable in every way, he says. Incidentally, this is one of the things that you and I should be voting for as well. One of the things we should always ask ourselves is which candidate is more likely to protect, protect our rights, to faithfully practice our faith, and to live lives of godliness. That should be part of the equation when you're thinking about voting. Who is going to, again, create conditions in this society that allow us as Christians to freely worship the Lord, to freely share our faith, and to live lives that are godly? So here in 1 Timothy, we see that we pray for our leaders, that we seek to lead peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. When God's people were exiles in Babylon thousands of years ago, they practiced this very principle. This is from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. This is God talking to his people. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then here's the key in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God's saying, look, while you're in pagan Babylon, the king is not a, not a believer. While you're there, I want you to pray for the blessing of Babylon. I want you to pray for the welfare of the city that I'm sending you into, that you might find your own blessing as he blesses Babylon. He was not a believer, but God's people were called to pray for him anyways. As I mentioned, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy while Christians were living under Roman rule. And likely the Roman emperor at this time, as Paul writes this letter, is Nero. And if you've ever heard of Nero, we associate Emperor Nero with <clears throat> incredible wickedness. He was a terrible guy, ultimately. In fact, things were so bad that when Rome caught fire and it burned a major chunk of the city, he ended up blaming the fire on the Christians, even though there was no evidence for that. He used them as a scapegoat. Blamed the fire on the Christians and unleashed a horrendous persecution on the Christian church. Believers were being taken and they were being hung on crosses in the city. Christians were being taken and they were being fed to animals for entertainment. They were being mauled by wild animals. And perhaps most grotesque of all, he was taking Christians. He was so demented at this point in his reign, he was taking Christians and he would actually stake them up on poles in his garden and in the evening douse them with oil and set them on fire so that they would be human torches that illuminated his garden. What a wicked, wicked man. And yet Paul says, Christian, pray even for leaders like that. Now, if you're hearing that the way I'm hearing that, it's hard to get your head around that. Like, what do you mean pray for someone like that? Why would I pray for someone like that? I want someone like that to be judged. Well, the answer is this. 
No matter how evil somebody is, there is always something we can pray for them about. First and foremost, for their salvation. Asking that God would actually get a hold of that person. That person, no matter how corrupt, how evil they are, they're still created in God's image. And certainly they've made many decisions throughout their life that have led them down that path of continuously darkening their own heart and alienating themselves further from God. But that person is still created in the image of God and we should be praying for their salvation. And if God would grant their salvation, imagine the amazing impact that that person could have for good instead of evil. And so we should always be praying for those that are in authority over us. And first and foremost, we should be praying for their salvation. It is good for us to pray for all leaders, whether they're godly or not. So family, it is good and it is right for you to be praying for our president. In fact, we should be praying, especially for him and the first lady who have contracted COVID-19 right now. We should be praying for them. It is good and right for us to pray for President Trump, just like it was good and right for us to pray for our last president, President Obama. Just like it is good and right for us to be praying for our governor, to pray for our mayor, to pray for our city council, to pray for our board of education, to pray for our law enforcement officers. We are a people who pray for those who are in authority over us. Again, one of the reasons, as we've seen here, is that we desire a peaceful society, a place where we can freely exercise our faith and we can live lives of godliness and love our neighbors. But not only that, as I alluded to a moment ago, we ought to be praying for each and every one of their salvation. This seems to be the, the logic of Paul's argument here as we move into verse 3. Notice in verse 3, he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What is good? What is he referring to? Well, he's referring back to what he had just written in verse 2, verses 1 and 2. It is good, he says, and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior that you and I as Christians pray for everyone and especially those who are in authority over us so that we might be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Why? Verse four, because our God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So it seems here in 1 Timothy 2 that the kinds of prayers that we ought to be praying should have two focuses. First, again, we should be praying for just leaders who create these conditions that we're talking about that allow us to live and exercise our faith. But secondarily, we should be praying for the salvation of people who are lost and as it relates to governing authorities, those who do not know Jesus. We should be praying that they come to faith in the Lord. Now, you need to understand that this emphasis on um, on uh, God's desire for all people to be saved was actually corrective to the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus. Like in Galatians, which we just studied as a church, there were Jewish false teachers in Ephesus too. And they were under this impression that because they were Jewish, they were God's favorites. They were God's special people. God actually cared more about them than anybody else. And they, they understood themselves to be the privileged group in the world. There's also, in Ephesus at this time, hints of another heresy that was developing in the early church, which is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically taught that salvation, your ability to know God and to go to heaven, was dependent on you having some higher knowledge, some sort of insider information. So even amongst the churches, 
They understood that there were elite groups in the church who were really the special people, who were really destined for salvation, but it was based on higher knowledge. It was only available to a select few. The Apostle Paul here is dealing with this nonsense by reminding Timothy that God desires all people to be saved, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, these forms of elitism, whether it was Jewish elitism, were better than Gentiles. Gnostic elitism, were the intellectuals, were smarter than those other people. Or any other sort of elitism has no place in the church. The church is supposed to be a place that values all people, all types of people, every single person, because all people are created in God's image. So there's no place for any form of elitism in the church. We are to pray for the salvation of all people because God desires all people. And as we're going to see in just a moment, Christ died for all people. Right now, there's a lot of us versus them going on in America. Right now, in the country that you and I are living in, things are polarized. And people are being moved into certain groups, and they're being identified with those groups. And if people are in a different group, they're demonizing people in those groups. So simply put, I I suppose you could say you've got maybe on one hand, these would be the broad groups. You've got liberals, Democrats, um, Antifa perhaps. On the other side, you've got conservatives, Republicans, Proud Boys maybe. It's like we're able to just kind of like push things out in these directions and go, okay, these are the groups. And if if you fit any of those things, then you're all of those things. And it's us versus them in our country. The question this morning would be this. Whoever them is for you, are you praying for them? Like, like think about who you are. Whoever them is in your mind or in your group, are, are you praying for them? Is your heart in that place? Or are you falling into the very fleshly, very worldly trap of just demonizing the other side? Oh, they're awful. They must be awful. They support this. They believe in that. They follow him. They must be evil. Are you praying for them? Specifically, are you finding room in your heart, Christian, to pray for their salvation? Lord, I want to see that person come to faith. I want to see that person come to new life in Christ. I want to see that person born again. I want to see that person join the church. I'd love to worship next to that person, sing songs of praise to you next to that person on a Sunday morning. It's tragic right now, but many Christians seem more concerned about winning an election than winning souls. Like that's the focus. We've got to win an election. This has to turn out the way I want. And our energy and our focus is aimed at that. And I I understand elections are important. Elections do have consequences, but listen, family, they are temporal consequences. People's souls have eternal consequences consequences. That matters most in God's economy. It should matter most in our economy. We should be praying for people's salvation. We should be passionately seeking the salvation of people, no matter whether they're in our camp or another camp. We should want to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this this week. Wouldn't it be so amazing if this season, let's just call it 2020, that has been so filled with immense pain and been so disorienting and 
has been marked by polarization and fear. Wouldn't it be amazing if this season, 2020, was actually the very soil that God used to bring sweeping revival across our country? That things were so bad, things were so out of, out of place right now, so disjointed in our society, and the church became so focused on what we should be focused on, which is not necessarily politics, it's the kingdom of God, that we decided to live like the church and pray like the church and preach like the church and God used this terrible dark season to bring about an, a, a massive, unthinkable harvest of souls. Wouldn't that be amazing? Isn't that worthy of us devoting ourselves to prayer for that during this election cycle and beyond? In verse 5, we're going to move down. You'll notice that this universal reach of the gospel, where, where I'm saying that God desires all people to be saved. That universal reach of the gospel is rooted in the two facts that you see here in verse 5. These are the two facts. Number one, fact number one, there's one God. Fact number two, there's one mediator between God and man. Fact one, you see it right there in number five. For there is one God, verse five, not number five, verse five. For there is one God. Now, the reason this statement matters so much in this context, in 1 Timothy 2, is since there's only one God who desires that all people be saved, he must then be the God, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also. Therefore, Paul is, in verse 7, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, he says. Now, unlike the local deities in the ancient Greco-Roman world who, who they would just rule over an area, and those deities were understood to be, again, local, they would take care of the people there in Ephesus, for example. Unlike that, the true God, the God of the Bible, is the God over the whole earth. All seven continents, every tribe, nation, tongue, people group, he is God over all all, the entire planet. And so we must never imagine God as ours exclusively and not theirs over there, wherever over there is to you. Now, we need to also see fact two, which is that there's one mediator. He goes on in verse five. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And the reason this is important is because the fact that there's only one God or one being who created us and to whom you and I are accountable, only addresses part of the Christian gospel. See, there are many non-Christians who would agree with us up to that point. Yeah, sure, there's one God. Jews would agree with that. Muslims would agree with that. Mormons would agree with that. Jehovah's Witnesses would agree with that. Many spiritual people even would agree with that, that there is an ultimate being or spirit or force behind the universe. And had Paul stopped there with the notion that there's one God who desires all men to be saved, we might be tempted to speculate that this one God saves different people in different ways. Indeed, in our pluralistic society, that's exactly what many people do believe. Non-Christians and even many professing Christians that God saves different people in different ways. They say something like this, God loves everyone. God wants all people to be saved. And really, sincerity is the most important thing. And so God saves different people in different 
ways. So Muslims are being saved through Islam. Buddhists are being saved through Buddhism. Hindus are being saved through Hindu, Hinduism. Irreligious secular people are being saved through their general goodness and their, their love for people and planet and so on. This is what many people think in our society. Now, premise one, of course, is true that God does love everyone. Premise two is also true that God does desire all people to be saved. But premise three is where there's a problem. Sincerity is not the most important thing. As I've mentioned before, you can be sincerely wrong. If I got on a flight headed to Hawaii, and let's say that the standard practice is that they fill the plane up to a certain amount of fuel every time a plane flies to Hawaii. If I knew, if I found out that the captain said, hey, we're good at half that amount, because I sincerely believe it's enough to get us to Hawaii. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for another flight to Hawaii. Because I don't want to risk him with all his sincerity in the world being sincerely wrong and my plane going down over the Pacific. Sincerity is not the most important thing. So premise three here actually fails, which means that premise four does not follow that. Again, God would save every single person in different ways. Put differently, many people in our society believe all roads lead to God. I remember my former pastor a number of years ago made a statement. He was preaching uh, in a very large evangelistic outreach. So it was a stadium. There were 50,000 people there. And I remember him saying something that made the entire 50,000 people silent. He said, I'm going to say something that might shock some of you coming from a Christian preacher. And then he said, I believe all roads lead to God. And everybody's like, whoa, <laughs> is he supposed to say that? Let me, let me double check that. They're like flipping through Bibles. But after saying that, he followed it up by saying this, but I do not believe that all roads lead to heaven. What he meant is that no matter what you believe, you, you could believe anything. When you die, you will in fact stand before God. Every road is going to lead to the true God. But not every road is going to lead to heaven. That as Jesus defined it is a narrow road that is going to ultimately lead to heaven. That narrow road is a road that goes through Jesus Christ. And that's the exact point that Paul makes here. He says, the one God who desires all people to be saved has made one way for them to be saved. And you need to understand that this is not just a preference thing. This is a necessary thing that Jesus be the only way. Why? Well, because of that key word there, mediator. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill the role of mediator between God and man. And what is a mediator? That's a word that we don't use every day. A mediator in a legal setting is a person who helps two parties find a solution to their dilemma. So it's a kind of a non-biased third party who sits down with two people who've got a legal issue and mediates between them. In other words, he's trying to, he or she is trying to bring reconciliation to these two parties, trying to find a solution and, a, and an agreement so that the parties can be reconciled. Therefore, a mediator must be able to represent, represent both sides equally. It's a non-biased person. Well, significantly, Jesus is the only one, the only one who can resolve the dilemma between sinful man and a holy and righteous God. And the reason for that is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
The scriptures teach us that Jesus himself is God. We see this in John chapter 1. Let me read you a couple of verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word, this is verse 14 now, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, as well as many other passages, clearly teach us that this Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago was actually God incarnate. And here in 1 Timothy 2, we see that Jesus is human too. Verse 5, it's the man Christ Jesus, literally the person Christ Jesus. Jesus stands out as unique from every spiritual figure in history, from all spiritual gurus, from any other religious figure. Because Jesus is not just a good man. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the God-man. Now, why is this important? Because as the God-man, Jesus is uniquely qualified to mediate between us and God. He's the only one who can do that. Christ, in his divinity, reaches from heaven toward earth. And Christ, in his humanity, is able to reach from earth to heaven. And in effect, he can lay his hand on us both. In and through Jesus, the gap can be bridged. How is the gap bridged? Finally, by what he's done, look at verse 6. Paul writes that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus gave himself. He's referring to Jesus voluntarily laying his life down on the cross 2,000 years ago. We must never think of Jesus as a helpless victim of the Romans or anybody else. I mean, how could God be a victim unless he voluntarily allowed himself to be one? Jesus was no victim. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He gave himself for us to ransom us from our sins. What does ransom mean? It's a word that describes the price that is paid for the release of a captive. You and I were held captive, according to the Bible, to sin and to death. But through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you can be set free. Jesus purchased his people out of captivity. And this family is the good news that the Apostle Paul was appointed to preach. This is the good news, family, that you and I are appointed by God to preach. This is the message that should be the loudest message you proclaim. And that's really important in a season like this. Where again, many of us are, are subduing the gospel in an effort to promote a particular political objective. This should be our loudest message. Again, not that you can't have political opinions. Not that you can't try to achieve temporal political ends. You can do that. Just do not lose focus. This is about heaven and earth. This is about time and eternity. This is about souls. This is about life and death. This is what you and I are appointed to preach. This is the good news. And this is the news that saves. Any person, doesn't matter who they are, upon hearing that message of what God has done for them through Christ, if they would repent of their sins, in other words, stop running away from God, And they would run toward God in faith and receive Christ as their Savior. Guess what? Jesus would save them. That's the great news of the gospel. 
So here's the application for today, family. God is wanting on this Sunday morning to redirect our perspective, to redirect our perspective. Many of us, again, are very anxious about this election. We feel as though a lot is on the line and many of us are tempted to take matters into our own hands, arguing, debating, trying to change people's opinions, trying to get others to see things our way. This morning, God's trying to cut through all of that noise and say to his people, pray, pray, call on me, seek me during this time. I sit on a throne that nobody can move me from. I do all that I please in the heavens. The kingdoms of the earth before the Almighty are nothing more than castles in the sand. He brushes them aside. And he's saying to his church, listen, call on me. Pray. Ask that the future of this nation would be a place where you can live a godly life, dignified in every way, where you can exercise your faith. And beyond that, pray for salvation. Pray that I would save those in these important positions. Imagine how revolutionary that would be for our nation right now. Pray for others who aren't leaders, but just other people who do not know Jesus, that I would bring sweeping revival to this land. I don't know about you, but I'm eager to pray for that. I'm eager to see what the Lord will do with the prayers of his people, asking for things like that. In closing, maybe you've joined us today and you've never turned away from your sins. You've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Please know this morning, there is a God in heaven and he loves you. Not the you that you project to everybody else. He loves you, the true you. With everything going on in your life, all of the things that aren't right in your life, God loves you. And know that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago died on the cross for people just like you. And finally, know that if you, even this morning, if you would respond to the love of God by turning to Jesus in faith, by saying, Jesus, I don't have this all figured out, but I believe you died for me. I believe you love me. And I want to surrender my life to you. Even a faith like that, Jesus will respond to this morning and he will radically transform your life and your eternity. If this morning you find in your own heart a desire to make a decision like that, a desire to say yes to Jesus, please, after this service, find myself or find Pastor Ryan. Let us know that because we want to encourage you and we want to help support you and get you on the right track following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. This morning, we are reminded in your word that perhaps our greatest responsibility is the responsibility to not depend on our own strength. And this goes not just for elections, this goes for every day of our lives. It's to not depend on our own strength, but to depend on you through prayer. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up as a community of Christians to be prayerful, to seek you. And Lord, we pray that you would answer our prayers according to your will. There are many times and we don't even know what we ought to ask, but your word says that 
The Holy Spirit prays for us in those moments. And even though we might not know what to ask sometimes, we always know that it's right to ask for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, we might not know the exact political outcome that's gonna ultimately be best for this nation, but Lord, we know that we trust you. And we pray, God, that you would bring about a wonderful, wonderful future in this nation. But Lord, even if you choose not to do that in the here and the now, we know that we are not just citizens of the United States. We know that we are citizens of heaven and it's a kingdom that is unshakable. And that's where our ultimate hope rests. And so Lord, we rejoice that no matter what is the outcome of this election or the future of this nation, we rejoice that your kingdom is secure and that we're citizens there. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray that you would, during this season, bring sweeping revival. And Lord, I pray that it would begin with us as the church, that you would revive our own hearts, that you would refocus us and redirect our perspective, and that we would be a people that more than anything are seeking to live godly and dignified lives and praying for those who do not know Jesus and that we'd be willing to preach the gospel. And Lord, through those efforts, we pray that many would come to faith. Lord, would you do these things for our good and for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.